I guess we're live. Are we live? I'm, I'm down here tonight. If you can't see me as well, um, that's because I'm down here and I'm not up there and our lighting isn't quite as targeted down here as it is up there. But uh, Sunday morning, we're going to do something a little bit different, something I very seldom do for lots of reasons. But um, every now and then, I think it's good to do it. So I felt the Lord would have us do it. And I ran it by some of the men and we're going to do it. Sunday morning, we're going to, in the morning service, we're going to observe the Lord's Supper this coming Sunday. And so I plan on being down here Sunday morning. So I told the tech guys and the lighting guys, I'm going to give you a dry run tonight. Try to make me look as good as you possibly can <laughs> in the next uh, 30 minutes. Uh, <laughs> so uh, be patient with them. And we appreciate our tech guys and all that they do. All right. We're going to be in Luke chapter number uh, five tonight. Luke chapter number five. We began last week a uh, uh, Bible study of our life of Messiah uh, that I entitled Why Do the Pharisees Have So Many Rules and we got about halfway through it and we got so much discussion that it kind of uh, we, we did a lot of talking last week. Maybe we will again tonight. That would be fine if that's what happens. Um, we are looking at the idea the, that, that Jesus is having a conflict with the Pharisees over particularly over the issue of, of fasting and in Luke's account we're going to see this story unfold and remember that Jesus just had a dinner with the publicans and sinners and now the the Pharisees are are making an issue out of the fact that John the Baptist his disciples fasted and they the Pharisees fasted and they said why why don't you fast and of course um well, let's just read verse number 33 uh, of, of Luke's account. It says, And then they said unto him, Why do the disciples of John fast often and make prayers? And likewise the disciples of the Pharisees, but dine, eat, and drink. And so basically, why don't they do this? Now, this was based on a lot of different rules that the Pharisees had. And we discussed last week how the system of rules that were in place in the day of Jesus when he was here physically on the earth were developed during the 400 silent years between the Old and New Testament. And uh, as Dr. Frutenbaum says, there was a transition from a a, a, a Judaism based on biblical authority to a rabbinic or Pharisaic uh, Judaism that was based more on rules. And of course, we, we looked at the idea that they they did this because they, they, were, they wanted to adhere to the 613 laws of Moses. And we talked about how a group of people came to power called the Sophorim, and they, they started developing the first set of, set of rules. And they, they thought the idea was basically, hey, let's build a fence around the, the law. If the law says to do this or not to do this, then let's build something around that to make sure that if something gets broken, that it's our fence and that we don't violate the law. And remember, part of that was motivated by the fact that they had finally, as a people, understood when you violate the laws of God, you go into bondage. You, you, you go into captivity, and that's not a pleasant thing. They didn't, they didn't want to repeat that. You can, you can understand that. And then last week, we, we started looking at the, or we introduced the idea of the pill-pull logic system that was very dominant in the day that led to some of these rules that we're going to find Jesus clashing with. And I told you last week, uh, you know, full honesty, I said, you know, the pill pull, you know, where in the world is that name's got to come from somewhere, right? And I told you last week, usually when I write my stuff, if I, something like this comes up, I, I deviate off and I go try to figure it out. Now, either I didn't have the time or it didn't occur to me, but I didn't know the answer last week. But I went home and I said, I got to come back next week and I got to know the answer to that. And honestly, you say, how do you find out the answer to that? A lot of times, I'll, there's two or three 
Jewish sites, myjewishlearning.com is one of them, that I'll go to that are, that are Jew, Judaism sites. And I go and see what they are still saying today about these things. Because, you know, Dr. Frutenbaum, as you know, was, you know, his whole family was, uh, his grandfather was a rabbi and his dad was a rabbi. And um, I think Dr. Frutenbaum was in his personal life. That's probably where his family saw him going was that direction. And obviously the rest, he got saved. And, you know, so he knows a little bit about this. So it doesn't surprise me when he tells me something in Life of Messiah, I go in there. Now, sometimes the way the, the modern Jewish, Judea, you know, the rabbinic writings today, how they might view it might be off a little bit, but it's generally rooted in the same thing. So I went on this pill poll. I'm like, what in the world is that at? Well, it turns out um, there's in the Talmud, in, there's a Hebrew, I guess, pill pell. And that's the verb, and it literally means to spice or to season, and in a metaphorical sense, to dispute violently. <laughs> like that. It's like, you know, if you take Emerald, you know, remember Emerald's cooking show? And you go, bam, take it up a notch, you know, kind of thing. That, that's kind of pill-pell. Um, and, and you think, well, how does that work in the, in the Talmud? Well, um, I'm just going to tell you, read from this, the, one of the Jewish sites that I was studying. It, this is from a Jewish, a literal Jewish perspective today. They said, since the disputation of the subject is, is in a way spiced and seasoned, the word has come to mean penetrating investigation, disputation, and drawing of conclusions, and is used especially to designate a method of studying the law. So in other words, if you're having a discussion, like we like one of the ones that happens on Bill, Bill and Connie are, oh, they think they're doing junior church, but tonight or something. Or, but sometimes in, in the men's group, we like to have a big confrontation argument about um, well, the Corvette's the best sports car, and um, or you know, I'm one that I like to really annoy Pastor Danny. So, if you want to know how to annoy Pastor Danny? Just go up and say, "Man, I saw that the Miata is the top-rated sports car." Because Pastor Danny's under the illusion that the Miata is not a sports car; it's a sports car, and um, and I liked annoying him about it. So I got it. You know, see, you can just have discussion randomly about cars, or you can spice it up a bit. And throw a few things in there and watch, you know, and all of a sudden quotes and statistics are being, oh, the Corvette's a V8, rah, 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 four-cylinder, you know. <laughs> you know, and you get going. That, that spices up the debate. And um, that's kind of where the word comes from. Now, the, the Jewish uh, website went on to say the essential characteristic of Pilpol is that it leads to a clear comprehensive uh, comprehension of the subject under discussion by penetrating into its essence, by the adopting of clear distinctions and strict differentiation of concepts. By this method, a sentence or a maxim is carefully studied. The various concepts which it includes are exactly determined and all the possible consequences to be deduced from it are carefully investigated. That's exactly what Dr. Frumbaum, what we talked about last week. They look at, like, when the law said, you know, uh, you know, we, the, the example we used last week that Dr. Frumbaum used was on the, the milk, you know, that Exodus 23 talked about, don't let the milk of the, the, the goat, the kid of the goat, see the mother's milk. And apparently that was something that was done as an offering to Baal. And, and so they said, we can't mix the dairy and the meat. That was the concept they took out of it and all the rules they went to. And they thought, how in the world could dairy and meat mix and anything that can do that, we better eliminate it. You'd look at all possible consequences and, and try to figure it out. Matter of fact, this piece that I read went on in conclusion and it said, the pilpolistic method is not satisfied with merely attaining the object of its investigation. In other words, coming to one solution. 
after having reached the desired result in one way, it inquires whether the same result might not have been attained in another, so that if the first method procedure should be eventually refuted, another method or another proof of the result attained may be forthcoming. In other words, if one way doesn't work or does work, um, then the opposite, if that one doesn't work, maybe this one will. So you better have all the possibilities. Now, if I found out myself that depending on what the issue is, you know, um, that I think most of us have some pillpolistic method inside of us. Anybody ever sit there at night when you've got some issue in your life and you think about everything that possibly could mean? Some of you ladies, bless your heart. Bless your hearts. You know, somebody says something to you at church, one phrase, you know, like, you know, that, that sure is an interesting color gray, Sarah. You know, um, and now Sarah lays at night, what did Pastor mean by that? I think he mean, does he mean possibly that he doesn't like gray? Maybe the gray was too dark. Maybe he thinks that Will doesn't like gray. Will's offended by the gray and doesn't, can't believe that Will's letting me wear this color gray. You know, anybody ever do that where you sit there at night and you just run everything? I'm, I'm really good about that and everything except the work area, which would be anything regarding the church, which means anything that's going on in your life. So let's just say there's a lot of things that can keep me up at night, and I'm pretty bad about that. You know, I'll sit there and I'll think about all this, all this stuff. That that's kind of what 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 that school was. And we discussed last week how that method ended up bringing all these rules in as they desired to keep the law. And we discussed last week. We just began looking at the rise of the first dominant school of thinking who began to run all the seminaries, the rabbinic seminaries between the Old and New Testament. And they were a group called the Sophorim. And they began around, be dominant around 450 BC. Um, and they had a very, they, they held sway all the way till a rabbi by the name of Hillel. And if you've studied the New Testament time of Christ, that name shouldn't be totally unfamiliar. But he shows up on the scene about 30 BC. So from about 450 BC to about 30 years or so before the birth of Christ, these guys, you know, they were in power. They, they were the dominant one. Now, in 30 BC, another group came on the rise, and they were called the Tanim. And the Tanim, they, they came and started being dominant in their view and how things ought to be done. And they looked over the work of the Sophrim over the last 430 years or so. And they looked at all the ways they wrote rules about how they could obey the, the 613 laws. And they looked at all that. Can you imagine looking over 400 years? Our country's not even near that age. What is that? Double the, you know, not quite double, but 400 some years. And they look over all the work and they say, you know what? There's still too many holes in the fence. There's still room for us to violate the 613 laws. The Sophrim did not think of all of it. Now, if I was a Sophrim, I might have been a little offended by that. 430 years of us thinking about it and still not enough. So the Tannum begin writing their own thing. Now, they hold sway till about 220 AD. You know, so they didn't hold on as long, but still that's a long time. But this is where things really when we're going to see in the New Testament become very significant. You see, when the Sophrim were there, the first group for them 400 and some years, when they would come up with a new law, they called it a Sophr. Makes sense, right? And the rule was a Sophr could disagree with another Sophr, but it could not disagree with the Scripture. In other words, if you're thinking about how we can obey this one, one of Moses' laws, and you're thinking of every eventuality, maybe one or two of them kind of 
seem in conflict with one another, that was okay as long as they didn't disagree with the scripture. Well, when the tandem came along, the tandem had a different perspective on this. The tandem come along and say, a tana, which is like a sofa except under the tandem, a tana may disagree with a tana, but it cannot disagree with a sofa. Do you see what's happened there? The tandem come along and say, okay, we, we think there's still more holes in the fence. We're going to develop our own, and here's the rule. You know, our thinking can disagree with our thinking, but it can't disagree with the sofer. But the sofer can't disagree with the scripture. So what, in effect, has happened is they have canonized, they've made of equal value all the rules of the soferum with the scripture. Hmm. That's interesting. So 30 years before Jesus was born and all through the life of the Lord Jesus, there are these thousands of rules of the sophrum that were now equal to Scripture. And that is what we see Jesus run into over and over and over. Matter of fact, I tell you, Jesus goes out of it. We're going to see in Life of Messiah, there's times where Jesus, you're really clear, he's going out of his way to, to violate the laws of the sophrum. And um, now there were people that said, well, how in the world did you guys come up with this? Come on, thousands of all these rules. You know, we kind of just like the Bible. Don't you think somebody would have had that kind of thought? And the rabbis write that some, I guess, free thinking, reasonable thinking believers, and probably was the believing remnant, um, said, hey, uh, how do you make this scriptural? On, on what basis? Well, the rabbis then came up and said, we got to figure out how do we, how do we, justify this. And this is what they did. They said, well, when God gave all the laws to Moses at Mount Sinai, remember Moses went up to the top of the mountain, got, got all the, you know, came down and broke the Ten Commandments and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, he gave two groups of laws. First, he gave the written law, which Moses received while he was on the mountain. But after he got all the written law, some of them say it was the second time he went back up there. Others say this all happened at once, but God gave him a second set of laws, the oral law. So when Moses was up there, he got the written law, which is the scriptures. And then he also got this oral law that Moses memorized. And so when Moses came down, whenever there was some debate, Moses had the, the rule in place and on and on it goes. And then when Moses passed on, he gave all of them to Joshua who memorized them. And then Joshua gave them to uh, the judges. And from one judge to another, they memorized them till the last judge, which was Samuel, right? And Samuel, if you remember in Samuel's ministry, remember one of, the, one of the things that Samuel did? Started the school of the prophets. And they teach that it was at that school of the prophets that that's where uh, those rules were given to the school of the prophets. And the school of the prophets is, is what led to the rise of the sophrum. And now you've got the laws. Simple as that, right? By the way, that's why even to very today, memorization is really important in Judaism. A lot more important than we take it, which is why I think it's so important that we do a wana around here and that our kids are memorizing scripture. It's really important. Um, but if you ever wonder why in, in Judaism, there's a lot of memorization because it's just steeped traditionally in memorization. And so, but basically the, the, the Tannum, they ran to 220 AD. And then at the end of that, the rabbis, you know, they, they figured things are in, in trouble now. Um, so what we probably got to do is write everything down. There was a rabbi by the name of Rabbi Judah Hanasi, and uh, he came to power, and that kind of ended the reign of the Tannum. 
So um, after the Tanum, there's another rabbinic school that takes over called the Amorim, and they, they looked over the work of the Tanum, and guess what? After 200 years of the Tanum looking at the work of the Sophrim and saying there's too many holes, we can still break the law. So the Tanum write a bunch of new laws. And then the Amorim come along and they say, you know what? The Sophrim wrote for 400 years and these other guys, the Tanum wrote for 200 years, but we still see holes. So they wrote more rules. And guess what they decided? That an Am Amora may disagree with another Amora, but an Amora cannot agree, disagree with a Tana. <laughs> which can't disagree with the Sophrim, which can't disagree with the Scripture. So in effect, now they've made the Sophrim equal to Scripture and all the writing of the Tanum equal to the Scripture. Woo! Now, you say, how does that come to today? Well, today, this is going to make a little sense. Some of you have probably heard some of these terms, and one of my goals for tonight is for you to understand how all this works together. But today, the, the, after the was written down, the, the work of the... Tanum and the Amorim. The, today, there's a, the, the works of the Sophrim and the Tanum is called the Mishnah. If you were to go today and pick up a Mishnah, which I don't have a copy of that. You know, he's got to get one of those. As Pastor Danny made, does he have one of those? You know, I don't know if he has. I'd probably get one of those. But it's got uh, all the work of the Sophrim and the Tanum. That's what makes up today's, if you get a Mishnah, that's what it is. Interesting to know, isn't that? Um, and then the work of the Amorim is called the Gemara. And if you get a Mishnah and a Gemara together, kind of like in our, we have a Bible, but it's got an Old and New, old and New Testament, but it's the Bible. In, in Jewishness, it's a Talmud. And the Talmud may, is, a, is one book that brings the Mishnah and the Gemara together in one volume. Are you with me? Fascinating, isn't it? Now, Dr. Frutenbaum tells us, if you want a scope of this, if, 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 if you want to blow your brain, Dr. Frutenbaum says that the Mishnah was originally written in Hebrew and in small font was about 1,500 pages in length. Oh. And he says, the Gemara, which remember that was the last one that was written over the shortest amount of time, written in Aramaic, which is the language of Jesus' day, really. Um, he said that that book is about the size of an Encyclopedia Britannica. Wow. I put in my notes, I wonder how many terabytes that is. Let's put it in today's modern language. Now, I don't even know. Oscar, maybe you can come up with that. How many? I imagine in one, how, could you fit the entire Encyclopedia Britannica on one terabyte? I, this is way out of my realm of expertise, so I have no opinion. I figured somebody in here is smarter than me, but apparently not. If you're watching online, nobody seems to know. Um, but let, pardon me. Yeah, that's right. It's about, it, Will says the only thing longer you can think of was our tax code. You're not, you're, you're not wrong. Stacks like this, you are not wrong. Um, so all that to say in Jesus' day, the Gemara was not around yet. They, the Amorims hadn't started writing yet. But Jesus' conflict with the Pharisees was over the early part of the Mishnah, the writing of the Sophrim. And typically, it was called in Scripture, when we go and read in the life of Messiah, you're going to find that it, um, that it's called the, the tradition of the elders or the traditions of the fathers. That's the terminology Jesus will use to refer to these writings. Now, Dr. Frutenbaum brought out something that I found very fascinating that I, I think will bring some meaning. So how well can they do this? Well, if you bring it from their perspective, I maybe understand it a little more. Uh, according to Pharisaic Judaism, putting the Torah into practice was impossible 
without rabbinic interpretation, which means that the concept of sola scripture, scriptura in the Latin, you know, scripture alone, doesn't apply. From their mindset, there simply cannot be a conflict between the scriptures and the tradition because it is precisely the tradition that allows the scripture to be effective. In other words, they came to the point that said, you cannot obey the scripture if you don't have the tradition, the everyday laws to put it into place. Maybe I could put it this way. Sometimes, you know, in the New Testament, it'll say, you know, um, you know, don't be, uh, I don't know, uh, don't be greedy. Don't, don't, I don't know. Somebody tell me something in the New Testament. You know, mortify therefore the works of the flesh, which are these, adultery, concup- I don't know, all those evil desires, all these different things. I said, okay, don't have an evil desire. What does that mean? That's a principle that we shouldn't have evil desires, but somewhere in your life and in mine, it needs to come down to practical application. You know, there, there's probably something in your life that, that Satan or your flesh is desiring that you know is not right. And you better, you got to draw a line there, right? You got you to say it. But that doesn't mean in the New Testament and in the Christian viewpoint that that law necessarily needs to apply to every single believer everywhere. It's a you and God thing. Just follow what I'm saying. But at the same time, the principle of not having evil desires is universal. They, they came to the point where they felt that the laws to practically make it happen were inseparable from the scripture. And Jesus refutes that notion quite strongly. Now, by the way, um, they also, in the rabbinic writings, made a point, and I think it's in Hebrews where it says this, that the law was not given to angels. I think it's early in Hebrews that that said, if you know that where that's at. Um, but in rabbinic writing, they said, the law was not given to ministering angels, but was given to men. And from that, they deduced that, therefore, it's not the angels that have the power to interpret the, the, the oral law and the written law, but the rabbis. Now, that's a slippery slope. Um, I'm, I'm going to tell you just flat out, Jenny's family more than my family. <laughs> Sorry, mom and dad, but Jenny and I still call the church in Waukegan the cult church. Um, but there are guys in the banner of independent Baptists that, you know, the doctrines of the church are dictated and established by the guy behind the pulpit. That, that, that's scary. Now, he certainly should be the chief defender of the, the doctrines that that church corporately has agreed to stand together. But, you know, no matter what statement of faith you got, there, there's going to be some things out there that are gonna be, we're going to have disagreements on or things like that. But do you understand what I'm saying? Do you imagine the power it is if, if the one who gets to speak for the voice of God is the rabbi, and in Jesus' day, that's what it had become. And we see in the Christian church where that is rife, where, to me, simple-minded people are led astray and they, they worship a man, you know, that some pastor or whatever you want to call them. Um, it's, it's a dangerous thing. Now, I want to end today. We haven't had a lot of discussion. I got nine minutes, so that'd be interesting. Um, I find it interesting, this discussion about when Jesus is going to deal, when he can, argues with the traditions of the fathers. I looked up that word traditions and the Greek word that's used in the New Testament and used in the Gospels for that and stuff. And th- this is my question. And, and I've had discussions. I've had pull pill discussions with folks here in our church over the years. Um, one of which is probably watching tonight online, Brock. Um, 
he and I have discussed in, in years gone by, you know, let me, let me phrase the question. Here's the question for you guys to answer. Is tradition a good thing or a bad thing? Is, no, come on, giving me depends. Isn't that an undergarment? Um, <laughs> that's, that's Swafford humor right there, Matt. Come on, that's funny. Um, you know, then elaborate on depends. Yes, yeah, Sarah? Yeah, oh, how can you not think of fiddling around the roof? Which, uh, the sulfurum, that's exactly what, uh, uh, t- t- what's the guy's name, Taziki? T- z- t- who's the main character in uh, Fiddler on the Roof? Come on. Tebia, Tebia, there we go. You know, he's up there day and night. Like, now you got it in my head. I'm not, thank you, Sarah. I'm going to have Fiddler on the Roof playing in my head. If you've never gone and seen Fiddler on the Roof as a production thing, it is, if you get where you're going, it is fantastic. Um, maybe Elizabeth should be in that, you know. Um, you know, put that on. Joe, get a theater together. Put that. Have you guys ever done Fiddle Around the Roof? Yeah. You have? Did you play the, the you would make a, you, you would love to do that. All right. Well, I make a motion. Um, but okay. Anybody else? What do you think about tradition? Is it a good thing or a bad thing? Take, take a side and explain. If you think it's bad, tell me why it's bad. If you think it's good, tell me why it's good. Or nobody's going to say anything. I'm surprised. Yeah, Mike. As found in Second Thessalonians three six, is that what that is? Two, two fifteen. Yep. Okay. Taking something. Yep. Um, if you read in Second Thessalonians, matter of fact, you got your Bible right there. Second Thessalonians three six, the chapter over. Can you read that verse for me? It break away from me. He doesn't walk in our traditions. Let me give you one more. You got your Bible one, right? So you can do this fast. Um, although I could do it fast in here. First um, Corinthians 11, verse number two. First Corinthians 11, verse number two. Now remember, First Corinthians 11 is is the is the um, Lord's Supper chapter and starts out dealing with controversial issues. And you got it. First Corinthians 11, two. All right, you maintain the traditions. Like the King James, it's going to say ordinances. Same Greek word every single time. Traditions. Um, I would argue that Paul referring to his core teaching and ultimately into the Lord's Supper is referring to them as in some fashion traditional. And one of the things I would argue, living godly and choosing to do right versus wrong in some way can become a tradition, right? Now, if it's done just because you're doing it because somebody else does, then it's a problem. But when you're doing it habitually, that it becomes a tradition. I don't know. It sounds like a good thing to me. And I, there, there was an era. It seems to have died out. But do you guys remember? It seemed like that, that well, I'm going to get in trouble here. But that's okay. It's okay. You, you guys won't care. Somebody online might. We went through a season in America where if you were going to start some church, Number one, make sure it's non-denominational. Number two, make sure you say in the advertisement that this church is non-traditional. Now, let's flip the coin. Jesus certainly went after the traditions, the same Greek word that's in the Gospels, the the ones that Brother Mike just read. Um, How can traditions be a bad thing? Yeah, Will? Will? All right, when they distract you or co-op doctrine. All right, anybody else? 
Hunger traditions become a bad thing. Yeah, Sarah? All right, they, they become an obstacle or a means to control. I remember telling a friend of mine that he was pretty steeped in a lot of hardline independent fundamentalism. I'm going, I, I know you, I, and I appreciate, and there are folks that genuinely, and they're very genuine, I think there is the distinction there. But most of the leadership that I have been privileged or unprivileged to meet, it's not about holiness, it's about control. And I know that's hard to hear, but it is. And it, 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 some, I wish some Christians would wake up and say, you know, it, it is not for some guy up here to tell you every point of how you should live your life. It's his job and my job to preach the word of God fearlessly. And at times I'll take stands that are not public and, or that are not uh, well received in the public discourse because I believe they're biblical and I'll stand with them that, and that that's part of it but I'm not telling you every single thing what you and your family should or should not do um, you know can I tell the story Jenny can I tell you so well, you know, your parents won't disown me will you too late it's 36 years later um, you know they went to church that that if you wanted to buy a car you had to get the permission of the leadership of the church they had to make sure your giving was where it ought to be before you can go buy another car and it astounds me that, that otherwise normal thinking people that hold skilled trades or degrees take it. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Yeah, 4.0, do you have something? I was going to say, when you ask your questions, when traditions come back, I'll say if it, maybe piggyback off what Sarah said, I'm thinking if it becomes sinful, if Okay, if, if they become sinful, definitely becomes wrong, um, becomes a problem. And I might even go so far as to say, um, and this is where Brother Brock and I certainly would meet back together in unity and friendship, kindness of one another. You know, um, I like to mix, one of the reasons if you hang around here and those of you who've hang around here a long time, like Matt and Michelle have been here a long time, I will intentionally mix things up. I like it, and sometimes I like it when our music has different beats <laughs> it's okay if you don't like everything matter of fact I'll tell you when you join before you join part of my job is to make you not like everything because we ought to learn as the scripture taught us and God commanded us in Romans chapter 12 that we're supposed to honor one another and prefer one another and it's okay that doesn't mean you have to adopt every single thing the church does in your family you might think oh we're not doing that in our home hey I'm happy for you maybe you should do that Teach your kids it's okay. Now, if, if you have core doctrinal differences, that's a different story. Like, I'll pick, so I'm picking on Brock, continuing. You know, you know, I remember Brock telling me the church they were at was steeped, had become more and more steeped in Calvinism. He was a straight-up honest guy, as Brock is, went to the pastor and said, I can't stay here. I can't stay here because doctrinally, I just can't agree. That's a valid issue. But sometimes, boy, I'll tell you, people, pastors live in such fear that, boy, they don't tickle the ears of the sheep all the time and everybody's happy. They're just terrified. No, sometimes for me, when I get, I get a text or somebody doesn't like something, I kind of just smile and go, huh, I'm doing my job, you know. Um, made them a little mad. They didn't like that. Okay. Um, sometimes here's a little note to self or note to all y'all. I don't always like everything that happens here. Jenny will tell you every, every Sunday night I don't like something that's happened here. <laughs> but uh, no, I love it. I love it. I love it. Uh, you know, I can't wait when we come back from the cruise. I'll walk in this building and go, 
smell it in. Doesn't this building has its own unique smell, doesn't it, Rebecca? You're laughing, it does. And I, you know, at first it tastes, it smells bad, but after a while you get so used to it. And now to me, as a roommate of mine used to say, it smells like roses. It just smells beautiful to me. I can't wait to come back. So it smells paid off. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> and that is sweet. How sweet it is. All right. Well, that's. Yes, it's, it is. It, this building, this building soaks up when the paper mill DT, when you guys down there doing your thing in Oscar, could you not engineer that out that it would never blow this way? But then it wouldn't, this building wouldn't smell. But that's what it is. That's money. You know what? I've had people, especially I do this to new people in town. You know, you'll be, somebody's new to the air and they go, oh, look, listen to that, smell that, smell. I said, well, number one, it doesn't blow this way all that often, so be thankful. And number two, I said, it doesn't smell bad to me. It smells like jobs. It was worse? Really? Some of you have been around here a long time. Is that true, Esther? It was worse? <laughs> That's when you were running things. <laughs> Oscar shows up and all of a sudden the mill is clean. Oh, Bruton. Bruton has it too. y'all been a good tonight thank you so much for listening thank you for being here thank you for watching online tonight it was an interesting discussion and now that with the, the reason we spent so much time on that is because as we move forward in life of messiah you're going to see how jesus and the and the pharisees have conflict uh, over the mishnah over and over and how jesus keeps trying to point them back that no it's the word of god and the reason they rejected him and ultimately crucified him the primary was because he rejected the Sophrim and the Mishnah, and they could not abide that. All right, let me pray and we'll be dismissed. Thank you for being here. I don't think we have any other announcements for tonight. I don't think so. I think everything's pretty quiet for right now. See you Sunday morning and uh, let's pray. Lord, thank you for the teaching of your word tonight. Thank you for the time and enjoyment we've had together. And uh, Lord, help us to, to walk in uh, your word. And um, Lord, yes, to have the right kind of traditions of godliness and righteousness and uh, defending the faith, but also not to get uh, so judgmental in the rules and the regulations for did they become a sin? Lord, thank you for the families that are here tonight. Those who are watching online, bless them in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for being here. God bless you. See you uh, later.